السلام عليكم ورحمة الله. We are about to start our next talk by Sheikh Jamal. Um, before I begin, I need to um, just clarify something I said at the end of last session. I think many brothers perhaps misunderstood, perhaps the way I speak and not being clear. Um, basically, the speaker gets priority in finishing his talk. Even if that means we don't have any Q&A sessions at the end, times are always constrained, limited, so the speaker needs to finish at least his topic and theme in a comfortable way. So it's better not to interrupt him and rush him through to the end. And then uh, it's better just to let him finish the topic and then take question and answers if there is time. And what I proposed at the last uh, session was that if the other speakers agree with their approval only, and I haven't spoken to them yet, but because we had an overwhelming number of questions from a number of people who have approached me as well, that we may consider approaching the people who are doing the seminars and ask them if they can accommodate a Q&A session instead of the final session. We haven't cancelled anything, nothing has been determined yet, and I still haven't spoken to any of the speakers yet. And I will only consider approaching them this way if I know beforehand, by some means, that they will not feel insulted or offended for proposing this even. So nothing has been cancelled. There's a lot of talk outside saying a session has been cancelled. It hasn't been. Uh, the third little announcement is that regarding Q&A, we really only want the question and answer papers to be given to the chairperson, and if it's not there, just leave it at the side of the table, and never to the speaker himself while he's talking. And to the brothers who are helping out collecting Q&A papers, slips of paper, can you make sure that when you collect the paper, you wait till the, almost the end of the lecture before submitting the papers, not during it. There's a lot of interruption that way. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum, brothers and sisters. Um, inshallah, the topic today uh, will be on human rights and cultural values in Islam. And the speaker, as I'm sure you all already know, Sheikh Jamal Din Zarabozo. Um, we're running a bit late, so I think we'll get on with the lecture, inshallah. ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل ومن يذلل فلا هادي له وأشهر أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهر أن محمد عبده ورسوله أما بعد إن شاء الله in today's lecture concerning human rights. My goal, inshallah, in today's lecture is not to present what are the human rights that, uh, that we find in Islam. Uh, this kind of topic has been discussed by many people before me and even there's been some conferences and some resolutions passed by Islamic organizations describing the human rights in Islam. So inshallah, that's not going to be uh, the goal of this lecture. Similarly, I'm not going to be speaking about uh, refutation or comments in defense of some of the attacks made against Islam on the issues of, of human rights. Instead, inshallah, my goal in this lecture is to discuss discuss 
the human rights movement and the philosophy behind this movement and the goals of this movement and what should be the position of the Muslim towards this movement and what should he be aware of concerning this movement. One thing you'll note if you study the topic of, of human rights is that many authors, many researchers consider human rights to be purely a Western concept. For example, uh, Anne Elizabeth Meyer, who has written a book on Islam and human rights, a very popular book in the United States, I don't know about here, but a popular book that is used as a, a textbook in many uh, universities. She writes that the concepts of human rights are just one part of a cluster of institutions transplanted since the 19th century from the West. Similarly, in an article by Jay Donnelly in the American Political Science Review, he also says that the other areas of the world, not only do they uh, lack the practice of human rights, but they even lack the very concept of human rights. So from the Westerners' point of view, and obviously it is the Westerners who are still dominating most of the international organizations and most of the human rights bodies, from their point of view, it is a Western concept. So I want to begin, inshallah, from that point of view, that it is something that is developed in the West, and I want to discuss how even it was developed in the West. And then, inshallah, I want to move on to critique uh, what this human rights movement is really all about and what it represents for the Muslims. In general, what we could call the modern-day human rights movement really started, uh, and at least the Western concept of human rights, started in the 17th and 18th centuries in Europe. And if you're familiar with what was occurring in, in Europe, a number of changes were taking place. A number of ideologies were beginning to appear whether we're talking about science or religion, the, uh, the discoveries of Galileo and Sir Isaac Newton, the, uh, the materialism and the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes, the rationalism of Descartes and Leibniz, all of these things started to appear in that time to the extent that uh, one of the historians, one of the writers of, of the history of uh, human rights describes this development as occurring in an area in which they, they encouraged a belief in natural law and universal order. And during the so-called Age of Enlightenment, they had a growing confidence in human reasoning and in the perfectibility of human affairs. So basically what happened during this time was there was a break away from the church that was dominating Europe at that time, and they began to develop this movement that gave a predominance to human reasoning and the place of the individual 
And these kind of new philosophies and theories that begin to appear and they begin to attack the idea of dogmatic religious beliefs and the superiority of religion and the place of God in life and so forth. And this culminated, this culminated, you could say, in the French Revolution and the American Revolution. Uh, In the French Revolution, they had the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizens. And of course, in the United States, they had the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights and so forth. That was really the the beginning of, of this movement. But it is important that we understand some of the philosophy behind it. It is very clear that this movement developed in an area and at a time that due to it, it has a very anti-religious bias. The authority of religion has been removed and replaced by the authority of human reasoning. And even up to this day, that same kind of, uh, of thought is, dri- is the driving force behind this movement. Now, you know, after the time of the American Revolution and the French Revolution until World War II, there were no, what you could call, major developments in the human rights movement in the West. However, after World War II and in the forming of the United Nations, the different countries came together. And in particular, in 1948, they established what is known as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And as I said, that occurred in 1948. And this has a number of articles stating the different kinds of rights that every human being should have. And in essence, every country that belonged to the United Nations uh, signed this agreement, ratified this uh, declaration, although Saudi Arabia in particular, at that time even, had some uh, reservations, and so therefore they abstained on the vote. In particular, they had a reservation about Article 16, of the Universal Declaration, which says that men and women without any discrimination due to race, nationality, or religion have the right to marry and to establish a family. This was understood to mean that they have the right to marry anyone that they wish. Uh, and the, the uh, representatives from, from Saudi Arabia and some other Muslim countries, they noted that this violates the Islamic law that Muslim women are not allowed to marry non-Muslim men. And it also... I don't know actually if they, if they pointed this out, but it also violates the Islamic law concerning the fact that a Muslim man is only allowed to marry a Muslim Christian or Jewish woman. And also Article 18, which states that everyone has the right of freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This includes the freedom to change one's religion or belief. Again, the, uh, the Saudi representatives... Uh, abstain concerning this issue again because it violates the the law of ridda or apostasy in Islam. As I said, that took place in 1948. But over the years since that time, there have been other developments, other uh, covenants that they have passed. In particular, in 1966, they passed a couple of covenants that uh, were passed in 1966 and took effect in 1976. Uh, which were called the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. 
But what we see since 1948 and these covenants in 1966 and in the platforms that have existed since then is that the demands and the rights that are being claimed for all individuals of the world simply because they are human, they are becoming bolder and they're becoming more specific. For example, in the, uh, in the fourth, fourth World Conference on Women, the conference sponsored by the United Nations that took place in uh, Beijing, China in 1995, which a number of Muslim uh, organizations, including Brother Ali, actually, who was uh, present at that conference, in the platform for action. In other words, what they are what they are asking for to be implemented on an international basis and to become part of international law. And the platform for action in Article 97, they say that the human rights of women include the right to have control over and decide freely and responsibly on matters related to their sexuality, including sexual and reproductive health. What they are saying here. If you read the, the, the papers and explanations of those who participated in the program, they are saying that it is a woman's right to have a freedom of choice with respect to her sexuality and even her reproductive uh, decisions. So this means she has the right, for example, if she wants to become a homosexual, this is her human right. If she wants to commit zina, illegal sexual intercourse, this is her human right. Uh, if she wants to marry, for example, if she's a Muslim woman, she wants to marry a non-Muslim man, this is her human right. If she's pregnant, if she wants to have an abortion, this is her human right. If she's, if she's in a marriage and she decides that she does not want to have any children, this is her human right. And this, as I said, this kind of thing, they are getting bolder in their approach and more specific in the things that they are demanding as human rights that are uh, supposed to be for every individual simply because of the fact that he is a human. And in fact, even recently in, in the case that uh, happened, uh, I guess it is still going on in Egypt, uh, the BBC reported uh, in Egypt... Some of you might have probably have heard about this. There was 52 uh, homosexual men who were arrested on a luxury liner and arrested for debauchery. Uh, and some of the international human rights movements are upset because they feel that the human rights groups in Egypt are not doing enough to defend and help these uh, homosexual men who were arrested. And the response of the human rights groups in Egypt, which these are Egyptians, Arabs, some with Muslim names, some with Christian names, their response was that it is not the case that they, uh, that human rights or that homosexuality is not part of their agenda of human rights. This is not what they said. They said that at the present time, given the situation in, in, in Egypt, they would lose credibility if they stood up for these kinds of issues at the present time. In other words, it is part of their long-run agenda, and they have no problem with 
the concept of homosexuality and they believe it should be allowed in Egypt, but they are saying that at the present time, their movement is so weak and, and uh, fragile that they cannot call for those things explicitly within Egypt. But they are accepting it and they are saying basically that it is part of their long-term goal or long-term agenda. Now these things, the goal of these things and the goal of these platforms and conferences that the United Nations uh, holds is to make these things part of international law. To make them part of international law. And basically, international law nowadays, what it implies, if you, if you study international law in, in school, for example, is that these international covenants, in reality, they are not just on the basis of the government level, but even with individuals within, the gov within a, certain city, a certain country, if that country has signed any of these covenants or any of these pacts, then the international community has the right to object to what is occurring even within private organizations within that country. It's not just at the government level. So in other words, if, for example, uh, a Muslim country, let's say like uh, Egypt or Morocco or India or, <laughs> India <laughs> or Pakistan, should sign one of these uh, covenants, and many of them have, that means that even an Islamic organization within that country... In other words, not just at the government level, but if we wanted to open, let's say, a mosque, and we decide that, okay, we have a mosque here, and, uh, and we decide as part of our articles of declaration that it's not allowed for a woman to be the imam of the mosque. International bodies can come and argue that this is a violation of the covenant that the government has signed, and so therefore they can put pressure on that government to and it put an end to this kind of, of discrimination. And once a country signs that signs such a govern, uh, covenant, as one author wrote, countries are not permitted to opt out of their international legal obligations at will or on pretext of their own devising. Derogation from international human rights standards is permitted only under specific narrow conditions, which do not include denying people human rights by appeal to the standards of any particular religion. So what they're saying here is that, suppose, for example, the, the Muslims of, of, of Britain get involved in the elections and they take over the government. So they cannot say, okay, now we are Islamic government, we are Islamic state, and we're going to implement Islamic laws and we are going to withdraw from these covenants that we sign. The international community can still use whatever means it has available, whether it be boycott, whether it be legal means, and maybe even force. At times it can be even force to make sure that this uh, new Islamic government is not able to put in any kind of laws that they consider discriminatory, even if they say, well, now we're Muslims. Even if all of Britain becomes Muslim, and they say, well, now we're Muslims, and this is what our religion says, even if they refer to their religion by international law, this would not be acceptable. So this is the uh, little bit of background about 
the international law about the human rights and its place in international law before critiquing some of this uh, concept of human rights and before uh, discussing what it means for individual Muslims and for Muslim nations nowadays I want to go back to the idea that human rights as a concept is something that is not known or something that was not known except from the West. It seems to me that this kind of statement is somewhat uh, arrogant to say the least. And if we read, for example, even the lives of the different prophets, we see that the prophets were, were demanding things or they were standing for things which by definition nowadays must be considered like human rights. In the case of, for example, Musa alayhi salam, when he was uh, demanding the freedom of the Bani Israel, and Bani Israel at that time, the, the Pharaoh was, was slaughtering their children and leaving, of course, their, their females. And it was Musa alayhi salam who was demanding an end to this and demanding the, that Bani Israel be released in his charge. And this is what kind of issue is this describing? The Prophet the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even describes that, that Fir'aun was oppressing them, was oppressing those people. If we look, for example, in the case of, of Shu'aib, Shu'aib, if you study Shu'aib and what he said with respect to uh, telling the people that they have to be just and fair in their business dealings, these are some of the same concepts that you'll find on the covenant of civil and, and uh, the the covenant signed in, in 66 and put into effect in 1976. And there's even other concepts that the West is completely ignorant of, but are really, truly concepts related to human rights. And that's, for example, the case of Lot, alayhi salam. The people were committing uh, homosexual acts in their public uh, clubs, in their public gathering places. And this should be a basic human right, that a human should be allowed to live under such circumstances that he doesn't have to put up with that kind of facade or that kind of lunacy in his society. But and when, when we come to the Prophet Muhammad when we look at the, the Sharia of the Prophet Muhammad we see that Allah, the Prophet or this Sharia has established many important rights, and even they're called in Islam, and they've been called in Islamic law for many years, hukuq. When the Prophet ﷺ, for example, said, إِنَّ دَمَاءَكُمْ وَأَمْوَالَكُمْ وَأَعْرَاضَكُمْ عَلَيْكُمْ حَرَامْ كَحُرْمَةِ يَوْمِكُمْ هَذَا فِي بَلَدِكُمْ هَذَا فِي شَهْرَكُمْ هَذَا The Prophet ﷺ said, Verily your blood, your wealth, and your honor are inviolable to you like the sacredness of this day of yours, in this land of yours, in this month of yours. This is exactly this kind of speech in which the Prophet ﷺ is saying that your blood and your life and your honor are inviolable. This is exactly the same kind of speech that you find in the preamble or some of the articles of the, of the United Nations uh, Universal Declaration. The Prophet ﷺ said, لا ضرر ولا ضرر. And there's no causing of harm and there's no reciprocating of harm. And it is not allowed for any individual to go out and intentionally cause harm to anybody else. 
This, this obviously sets a standard for uh, human rights that goes far beyond what any of the Western uh, laws that they have come up with to this time. Many scholars, when they have studied the Sharia, they have noted that the Sharia has some basic goals. That the laws of the Sharia are intended to establish these aspects, to support them, to propagate them, and to enforce them. And these goals known as the maqasid of the Sharia, they are basically five. And that is the religion itself, life, mental capacity, familiar relationships, and wealth. If you look at the Sharia, if you study the Sharia, and you'll see that the Sharia is guarding and protecting these things. Of course, religion comes first, because from the Islamic point of view, if you don't have religion, then you don't really have life, you don't have what you have is not worth even living. So the Sharia seeks to protect religion, seeks to protect people's lives, it seeks to protect their mental capacity, it seeks to protect family relationships and also wealth. And these are the things that, from the Sharia point of view, these are the real rights and the real aspect that every human needs. And these are the aspects that should be supported and defended. And this is from the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if you look at these aspects and you can study, you can see the difference between something that has come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and something that has come from the product of human reasoning and the desires of humans, even if they call it knowledge or philosophy or science or whatever, it's really their desires. For example, here two of these aspects of the Sharia. Nowadays, Western philosophers and Western human rights advocates would consider these to be violation of human rights. And in the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pr promotes, uh, or the way the Sharia promotes uh, mental capacity and protects mental capacity, al and protects al-nasl, the family relationships, it does it in such a way that according to the West, this is actually a violation of human rights. And as I said, this shows you the difference between and when Allah comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when it is based on the whims and the desires of mankind. Because for man, what they've come up with, what the West in particular and others have come up with, is that it is a right to go out and drink and get drunk. This is a right. It is a right to be able to go out and commit zina. This is a right according to them. And it shows you how very different these two uh, perspectives are. Because anyone does not, in one's life, if one wants to have a happy life and a, true, a truly happy, wholesome life, he doesn't have to have the right to go out and drink and commit zina and these kinds of things. And this is what the sharia which comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is what the, the sharia is showing us and this is what it is establishing in our lives. So in Islam, the basis of the human rights comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who created us, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is actually the only one who can tell us what are our rights and what are not our rights. 
And also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one who has the knowledge to know really what is in our best interest. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَلَا يَعْلَمُ مَنْ خَلَقَ وَهُوَ لَطِيفُ الْخَبِيرُ And He's not the one who created, isn't He the one who knows about what He created? And so therefore he, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in His mercy, as a blessing to us, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us this sharia, and this sharia protects for us all of the things that we need to live a good and wholesome life in this world. And all of it is taken as a whole to preserve everything which is essential. And, and whenever we move away from that guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we start relying upon our own human intellect, which is always, the human intellect is always going to be biased. The human intellect may be very much influenced by its desires and its own goals. And every time we stray from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed for us, it is going to lead to harm in both this life and in the hereafter. Because any other way of judging, any other way of life, any other rulings, other than what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us, are no, none other than what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has described as jahiliya or ignorance. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَفَحُكْمُ الْجَهْلِيَةِ يَبْغُونَ وَمَنْ أَحْسَنُ مِنَ اللَّهِ حُكْمًا لِقَوْمٍ يُقِنُونَ Do they then desire or seek after a judgment of jahiliya, of the days of ignorance? But who for people whose faith is assured can give better judgment than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us that what He commands us, in fact, is justice. And everything Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us in the Qur'an is just and proper, given our nature as human beings. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُوا بِالْعَدْلِ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands justice, and at the same time, He prohibits, he prohibits uh, all shameful deeds and injustice, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues in that verse, وَيْنْهَا عَنِ الْفَحْشَاءِ وَالْمُنْكَرِ وَالْبَغِيِ When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed a right in the Qur'an, or in the sunnah of the Prophet and these things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has established in the sharia, these things are permanent rights, or permanent aspects of life until the day of judgment. And the, the Muslim believes in them as being the truth. And so therefore, you will, one big difference you will find between what we have in Islam, the human rights in Islam, and what the human, the human rights of the Western movement presents, is that the human rights in Islam actually have some, uh, what we could say, some teeth or some validity or some force behind them. Because if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Qur'an that we should establish this right for every individual of the Islamic State, or for every Muslim, or for every human being, then the believer is going to believe in it and he's going to sacrifice for it. And he will not give up that principle for any worldly need or for any worldly benefit. And this is, as I'll talk about in, uh, in just a few seconds, this is one of the things that makes a difference between the true human rights 
which have their source with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because when it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that means there's going to be believers in it. That means there's going to be people who are going to be willing to sacrifice their life to enforce what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prescribed for us. But if you study the situation of the human rights in the West, every, every writer you can find, at least every writer I could find who wrote about human rights, admits that whenever there is a conflict between human rights and the economic or political interests of any country, then human rights are going to be sacrificed. Because it is just a theory, it is just an idea with really no true force behind it. When they divorced, when they took out God from their lives, when they took out God from being the main factor for implementing these human rights, they were left with nothing. They were left with no real reason to implement these human rights. Just a false claim, an empty claim, and so therefore when it is in their interest to support human rights, they support human rights. When it is not in their interest to support human rights, you find all of a sudden they are silent. And as I said, this is something even the writers of the West, they have to admit. And we can find so many examples. Even if you go back, for example, to the Shah of Iran. If you look, for example, to see what the Shah of Iran was doing to the people of Iran, and you compare it to those covenants and those declarations that the people of the West and the United Nations are talking about, you see that he violated many of them. But he was a friend of the West, and so therefore those people who talk about human rights, even the president at that time, who claimed to be an advocate for human rights, they were supporting him until the very end. If you look, for example, at what happened in, in Algeria, one of the claims of the, of the human rights movement is that de democracy is a human right. People should have the right, the freedom to vote for whatever leadership, for whatever government that they want to vote for. So what happened in Algeria then? When the, Muslim, when the Muslims were or the Islamicists as they call them, when the Muslims were, when they won the first stage of the election, and it was very clear that they were going to take over the government, when the elections, one of the most important aspects of the human rights movement of the West, when the elections were stopped, and the process was stopped after the process, after they seen that the results of the process were not those that they would like, then all of a sudden, the human rights people were silent. The governments of the West, in fact, supported France in particular, supported the blocking of the election. Because again, they have nothing, they have nothing to base their claim, or to back up their claim and belief in the human rights. It is really just a matter of economic and political interest. And even in the, even the feminist movement, you might think the feminist movement, someone might believe in true sisterhood. But even the feminist movement, you have to question what is their agenda. Because they speak so much about whenever, for example, a country says you have to wear hijab, for example, when Iran said that, or they talk about the situation in, in Saudi Arabia. 
Yet, whenever women are accosted or attacked or even put in prison for wearing hijab, or whenever they're denied jobs because they're wearing hijab, like what happened in Syria years back, or even like what's happening in Turkey nowadays, where are their voices? Where are the voices of these feminists? Why is it a matter of freedom to go out without wearing clothes, but it is not a matter of freedom if you want to go out covered? If they are really interested in freedom and human rights, they should stand up just as much for the woman who wants to go out and wear hijab as they do for the woman who wants to go out without hijab. But this shows that maybe their agenda is something else. Maybe their agenda is more of an issue of, of freedom. Freedom in the sense of freedom from religion, freedom from moral restrictions, but not necessarily freedom to choose to follow a righteous path if you want to. <clears throat> and much, in fact, really of this concept of freedom and human rights that they are putting out As I just alluded to, it is more of a question of freeing the hawa, freeing the, freeing the people to follow their desires, to follow their lusts. And of course they put it in, in very nice, they're not going to put it in those names, right? <laughs> they're not going to come to a Muslim country. and even, even in the West, even in the United States, they're not going to say that we believe in just permissibility and, and let's allow everything. But instead they put it in, in very nice sounding names like freedom of expression. They put it, they call it art. They call it culture. You know, you, you can have a movie that's sexually explicit from the beginning to the end. Why do they allow it? Because they say it's, a, it's not just sex, it's, it's art. It's culture. And this is the kind of thing, I told you the five goals of the Sharia, you know, religion, and life, and wealth, and so forth. But it is really this kind of thing, the, the, the freedom to go out and show sexual acts, the freedom, for example, for someone like Marilyn Mason to come to your city and give a concert, if you know who Marilyn Mason is. I hope none of you know. <laughs> but Marilyn Mason, a very strange person, when he comes to a city, sometimes some people in that city don't want him. And then all of a sudden there's an explosion. What do you mean we're going to stop this person from coming? This is a matter of freedom of expression. He has to be allowed to come. And they will, they will argue and, and, and scream at the top of their voices. They'll take a day off of work to go and protest that this man should be allowed to come. This is what they consider the important values. This is what they consider the aspects of human rights that we and all human beings should respect And when you consider these human rights that they consider so important, when you think about them, the real crux of the issue, you know, there's, some, there's a whole school in, uh, in human rights theory, there's a whole school of those people who are called the uh, cultural relativist, relativists as opposed to the universe, universalists. The universalists say that these human rights are for everyone throughout the world, and so therefore we have to make sure that they're implemented everywhere. 
And some people say this is a Western bias and it doesn't apply to, for example, Islamic lands and so forth. But that is not actually the real problem. The real crux of the issue, the real problem is on what basis, on what basis are you going to come to us as Muslims, for example? Or on what basis are you going to anybody and claim that a certain thing is a human right? And this question of what is the basis for what we call human rights, this is really an ideological question, a philosophical question, and it, it strikes at the root of the matter and the difference between us and them. Because on what basis are you going to say that something is a human right? You're going to make a claim that for everyone, just because of the fact that he's human, that's what they mean by human rights. Just because of the fact that someone is a human, he should have these rights. Okay, what, what, are these, what, what do you base these rights on? You know, in Islam, alhamdulillah, we have a very strong and very clear basis. But what do you base your rights on? Can you possibly claim that it's just a question of freedom and everybody should have all the freedoms that they want? Nobody claims that, of course. Everybody understands that some freedoms or freedom to some extent has to be restricted. Milton Friedman, the, the economist, the monetarist, is very famous for his statement that my freedom to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. <laughs> so there has to be some, I mean even the, the people of the West, they realize that there has to be some limits even on freedom. Even on rights. So the question is, on what basis do you say something should be right or something should not be right? And this is where their whole, this is where their whole program falls apart. Because they have no basis. And in fact, what they are arguing today to be human rights, just 40 years ago in the West they considered to be something objectionable. Homosexuality. Forty years ago in the West, they didn't accept homosexuality. And now they're saying it's a human right. Twenty years from now, maybe they'll change their mind and say it's an aberration again. Abortion. You know, on what basis now are they saying that a woman, as the platform from Beijing said in 1995, a woman should have complete control over whether or not she will have an abortion. Again, abortion just 30 or 40 years ago in the West, something completely unacceptable. What about, here's a classic case, the case of pornography, for example. Pornography, I choose that case because some feminists, as they say, uh, many feminists regard pornography as an affront to human dignity. Here I actually agree with the feminists. It's hard to believe, but... <laughs> okay. So here we have some feminists saying that pornography is an affront to human dignity. It should not be allowed. But what right do they say, to what right do they have, and to, they're trying to put this into their platforms and make, for example, pornography illegal. 
But really, in, in what right do they have to tell other women that she doesn't have to write to take off her clothing and get paid, you know, 50,000, 100,000, whatever they're paying them nowadays. And even among the feminists, there's a disagreement because, again, they have no basis for what they're saying. Except ahwa, except for human desires and human whims. Humans nowadays say abortion's okay, okay, we want abortion. They have no real basis for it, as opposed to, as I said, for example, like us Muslims, we can base our beliefs, our ethics, and our rights upon what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed. Now this human rights movement, though, we must be aware of the fact that it is spreading. And it is spreading, obviously, to the Muslim lands. And it is spreading to Muslim individuals, especially those living in the West, those studying in Western universities, for example, they're very much influenced by many of these concepts. But also because the human rights movement uh, stresses political and civil rights, many times when it reaches Muslim lands, there's many Muslim lands in which the people never had a chance to vote in their life. They don't have much say and what goes on in the political system or what goes on in their lives. So when someone comes to them saying, oh, we should start this movement demanding our rights so we can vote and we can choose the government and we can do all these other kind of things, in many Muslim lands that sounds very appealing. And so Muslims start jumping on the bandwagon of this, this human rights movement without even realizing Really, what does it mean in the end, and what are what is its uh, its agenda? And unfortunately, another another thing that happens is that many Muslims, even unfortunately among our scholars, they become very apologetic when it comes to Islam, and they think human rights movement. You know that sounds good, right? As I said, yani all of these things they put them in very nice names. So they look, for example, at the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights passed in 1948, and they immediately say, oh, you know, Islam, we support all those. I can quote you many authors, I don't want to. <laughs> kind of not my purpose here. But they say, oh, Islam supports all of these rights that you mentioned. And then that statement that they make is taken up by other human rights advocates saying, look, here we have Muslims saying they support these things. What's wrong with those fanatics, fanatics and extremists who have any kind of problem with it? So we have, it is a danger in the sense that, uh, as I said, we have Muslims in the West, Muslims uh, studying in Western institutions, being influenced by it. When it comes to some Muslim lands, it sounds very appealing. And then unfortunately we have even some of our ulama or some of our leading speakers saying, yes, all of these things we accept. So it is, it is a danger, and it is spreading, and as I said, we have to be aware of it, and we have to be aware of what it is going to be demanding from the Muslims. And first and foremost, I think we all have to be aware of the fact that it is another plot from the shaitan. This human rights movement is clearly another plot from the shaitan. And when I say that, I don't mean necessarily, you know, that... Everything in it is evil. You know, shaitan is more clever than that, right? He doesn't come to he doesn't come to a human being and say, 
hey, let's, you know, go out and commit kufr and then we'll all go to the hellfire together. Ha, 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 you know. He prevents, he presents, you know, very nice, reasonable arguments. You know, what's wrong with human rights? You know, we should defend human rights and, and these people are defending human rights. Let's join with them. You know, don't humans deserve rights? How many of you would say humans don't deserve rights? <laughs> See, everyone would agree with that. So, and uh, shaitan or this movement is coming to us in a very, and he pictured in a very nice way. And of course, all of the international organizations are behind it. But we have to realize that it is another struggle between the, the deen of truth, deen al-haq, and kufr, and the denial of God. In fact, in the, in the Vienna Declaration, which took place in the 90s, uh, they stated that one of their agendas... And this is, by the way, uh, this is uh, Warren Christopher, the Secretary of State of the United States, was at that conference, and he, he pretty much reiterated what it said in the Declaration. The Declaration states the importance of working towards the eradication of any conflicts which may arise between the rights of women and the harmful effects of certain traditional or customary practices, cultural prejudices, and religious extremism. Now, how do they define religious extremism? And actually, there's a book by Abdurrahman al-Mutayri called Al-Ghulu uh, al-Din, which also has been published in English. <laughs> he has a very nice section on, on the... Uh, how the others view religious extremism. How, for example, the, the scholars, the so-called scholars of the West, how they, they define religious extremism, in particular among Muslims. And how do the secular Arab Muslims, how do they define religious extremism? Basically, any call to implement the Sharia as it is, this is a form of extremism. In essence, I mean, you can summarize their view that the idea that the Sharia is still to be applied today, this is extremism. And this is the kind of thing that human rights movement are not going to accept. They're not going to listen to that form of extremism. So in other words, for example, if you went to the Qur'an, yani just to take one example, if you quoted the verse in the Qur'an, فَإِنْ أَلِمْتُمُهُنَّ مُؤْمِنَاتٍ فَلَا تَرْجِعُهُنَّ إِلَى الْكُفَّارِ and this verse in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about the believing women, if you, if you ascertain that they are believers, do not send them back to the unbelievers. They are not lawful as wise, as, um, the meaning is as wise for the unbelievers, nor are the unbelievers lawful for them, meaning as husbands. If you quoted this verse, and you said that this means that a Muslim woman is not allowed to marry a non-Muslim man, then by definition you are an extremist. And basically, as I said, if you, if you want to implement the Sharia, you are an extremist. So these human rights movements, they are stressing and they are promoting an alternative form of Islam. In other words, they are finding those people, those Muslims, they call them Muslim scholars or whatever, 
who are presenting an alternative form of Islam. And they are using this, they are presenting it actually to the people of the West. And they are saying that, for example, uh, there are other forms of Islam which we will accept, the human rights movement can accept. One, for example, one author, uh, his name is Michael J. Perry, in a book called The Idea of Human Rights. Earlier in the book, he admitted that basically his background is in Christianity and that's what he knows about. He had the, if you ask me, he had the audacity to write. Uh, indeed, the arguments advanced in feminist Islamic theology are compelling arguments to the effect that the dominant insiders do misunderstand the tradition, that they marginalize or deny the deepest truths of the tradition. So here's a non-Muslim who admittedly doesn't know much about Islam, going to these feminist writers who probably, you know, like Fatima Mernissi and these uh, kind of people. And he's saying that the insiders misunderstand Islam. And these feminists are showing that these dominant insiders, these dominant insiders, who is he talking about? He's talking about those ulama who have spent their whole life learning the Quran, learning the Hadith, learning the Arabic language. They have no understanding of what Islam is about. That's what he's saying. They misunderstand the tradition. And a typical argument that you hear over and over, and this is very important to, to recognize this argument, because you hear it, as I said, over and over, especially if you are studying or working in any Western institution. And that is the, the, uh, the argument that uh, there is no monolithic cultural position or cultural aspect of Islam. Basically what they're saying is there's no such thing as one Islam. There are different variations of Islam. And so therefore, we, and in the human rights movement, we have to support those variations that are more compatible with the human rights movement. For example, uh, an author, Shaheen Sadr Ali, writing on human rights, and in particular women's rights, uh, in Islam, she is complaining about the silencing of the more egalitarian aspect of Islam by patriarchy, which is being uh, uh, which is achieved by adopting a literalist approach as to opposed to a progressive interpretation of the Islamic law. So she's saying, and she's a you know she has a Muslim name. She's from if I remember correctly, she's from Pakistan. And here she is writing as an authority on Islamic law. And she's saying that the problem is that we need the more progressive interpretation of the sources of Islamic law. So in other words, basically every issue, every text in the Qur'an, every law can, that can be derived in the Qur'an and Sunnah, becomes an issue of debate or discussion. You know, first there was the issue of hijab, the issue of polygamy, the issue of right to divorce, the issue of inheritance, the prohibition of riba. I've seen all of these before, but uh, in a book called uh, East Meets West, Human Rights and Democracy in East Asia, I actually came across a new one. <laughs> Here the author writes, his name is Daniel Bell, but he's, uh, he's relying upon a Muslim by the name of Abdullah Naim, who was a human rights advocate. He had mentioned in the text that, that Muslims don't drink alcohol. 
And then the footnote, he says, in fact, this is an area of dispute within Islamic circles. Some progressive, and he puts them in uh, quotation marks, some progressive interpreters argue that the injunction against drinking alcohol refers only to certain types of liquor and the obligation not to be inebriated during prayer time and not a blanket ban on drinking alcohol. His source for that conversation with Abdullah Naim. Abdullah Naim is one of the, uh, I don't know if Sheikh, Sheikh Jafar is here, but he's one of the fans of, uh, what was the name in Sudan? Mahmoud Taha, the Republican Brothers. And he translated his works into, uh, into English. But the strange, so here they are, they are supporting, they're trying to support a new version of Islam. But the strangest twist you get comes to comes when you see how they discuss and what they consider the concept of freedom of religion. Because in that universal declaration, Article 18, it says clearly that everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, and so on. It goes on. Let's see how they understand how that is to be implemented. Uh, Quoting again from Anne Elizabeth Meyer, who has written quite a bit on uh, Islam and human rights. She said, Muslims may have the sincere conviction that their religious tradition requires deviations from international law, and such private beliefs must be respected. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that you respect my private beliefs. However, the situation becomes different when beliefs that Islamic rules should supersede human rights are marshaled to promote campaigns or measures for stripping others of rights to which they are entitled under international law or when such beliefs are cited to buttress governmental policies and laws that violate the International Bill of Rights. And then she says, the resulting curbs on rights and freedoms go well beyond the realm of protected private beliefs and enter the domains of politics and law. What is she saying here? She's saying that you have the right to believe in any religion that you want as a private belief. But don't dare try to establish that religion as part of the law and part of the state. In other words, you can believe in religion as long as you're a secularist. That's what she's saying. You know, believe in any religion you want as your private. But if you think you're going to establish that religion as the law and that, that religion violates any of these international human rights documents and international law, then you've gone beyond your right to practice religion. So, one of the articles of the Declaration is freedom of religion. But we see that in reality, what they mean by freedom of religion is you can f believe what you want, but you cannot actually implement. What does that mean for Islam? They are basically saying you don't have the right to be a Muslim as a Muslim is supposed to be according to the Sharia. They are saying you don't have that right. They are coming to our lands talking about human rights, and in reality, they believe that no one has the right to be a Muslim in the complete sense of the word. This is what they are coming to us with. If you read some of the things that they want to change, you know, if they came to the Muslim lands, 
and they try to implement, for example, some of the rights that are sanctioned by the Sharia, if they came, for example, to the Indo-Pak subcontinent, and they said, for example, that we should support the women, the wives, in order to get their mahar. Because still, in many places, the mahar is going to be, of course, on divorce or death, and the woman actually never gets it. And in fact, in some places in India, still, the mahar is paid by the woman to the man. So if she were to, if they, you know, if they would come and say, we should change these kind of things, of course. But instead, what they want to change as the same author wrote, but in a different book, a book called Women's Rights, uh, Women's Rights, Human Rights, International Feminist Perspectives, the things that they want to change are things which are clearly in the Quran and Sunnah. For example, she says that the laws in the Muslim Middle East commonly provide that the wife must obey her husband, uh, that wives are not allowed to work outside the home without their husband's permission, that the man may take up to four wives, that the Muslim woman may, out, marry outside, may not marry outside the faith. Uh, in some areas, one may find that women are compelled to wear concealing garments in public and so forth. She mentions a number of things that come clearly from the Quran and Sunnah. And talking about these things as these are the things that they have to change. And these are the things that they have to eradicate. And they are using all of their force and pressure, as I said, to try to present that new Islam that will be compatible with this way of life of the West. And one of their approaches is presented by a man by the name of John Esposito. And I want to just mention what he has to say because, unfortunately, John Esposito is a man who is even being uh, invited by Muslim organizations to come to speak at Muslim conferences to Muslims about Islam. He's invited to many conferences representing Islam and talking to Muslims about Islam. And unfortunately, many of those conferences, also the people who come to those conferences, you know, they don't really have the ability to see what he's saying is correct or not. So he says that in the Quran you find that there are two kinds of values. He says the Quran is the ethical religious revelation. And it has a hierarchy of values. One are the abadat, and the other are the muamalat. I assume you can, you can already guess where he's going from here. The abadat are fixed and permanent. We can't change it. We shouldn't touch them. The muamalat were meant for a certain time, and we have to understand the idea behind them, the concept behind them, and we have to change them to meet the current needs. And of course, how do you change them? Well, you change them in every way that the West thinks should be changed in the contemporary, uh, in the contemporary time. And there, one of the leading uh, feminists and woman rights advocates is a woman by the name of Georgina Ashworth. And she was one of the members who, who developed that uh, platform at the Beijing conference. And here again we see the attitude that they have. That basically, religion means nothing to them. And don't try to come and defend your position on the basis of any religion. Even though that religion existed long before Georgina Ashworth ever came along. We should be asking her, you know, don't come along and tell us, you know, to change our religion. 
What she was writing, she said that the religious fundamentalists, and we all know who they are, basically us, right? <laughs> she said the religious fundamentalists among the, the uh, United States and in the Islamic and Hindu worlds, she's saying now they have some political force. They persecute and make outcasts of proponents of toleration. They also threaten the livelihoods and even the security of anyone courageous enough to stand up for women's self-determination. Let me just stop on that point. First of all, this is a bogus argument. She's saying that it is the religious right or the fundamentalists who are persecuting and making outcasts of proponents of toleration. If you are in the United States, for example, and even if you are a Christian, and you stood up and said, Christianity does not believe in homosexuality, you're going to be the one who's going to be ridiculed, you're going to be talked about in the press, people are going to write letters about you. Don't tell me it's the, it's the people of the right who are in the power who are persecuting others. Even in the Muslim lands, if you call for the Sharia to be applied in many places, you're going to be taken directly to prison. However, what she says after that, she says the combined claim of unique righteousness in the interpretation and fulfillment of their faiths and the right to exterminate heretics makes them sainted perpetrators of human rights violations who deny their human accountability by calling on metaphysical support. I should pass that out and let all of you think about what... <laughs> Basically, what she's saying, as I said, and this is the most biased an anti-religious statement I've seen put, put in a very objective-looking passage. What she is saying is that you do not answer to God anymore. Don't come to us and say, oh look, my texts say this, so we're going to do this. She's saying, don't give us this false religion and sainthood and think you can protect yourself by going back and claiming this is your religion. She's saying basically you don't answer to God anymore, you answer to, you answer to us us other human beings. And don't go hide behind your religion to claim that you can violate any of these human rights. And this woman, as I said, is one of the leading spokesmen for human rights and is very influential in many of the international bodies. And this is what they are, this is what they are imposing upon us as Muslims. They are basically telling us that no, we can no longer take the Qur'an and the Sunnah as our standard. And if we try to do so, they are claiming, they are trying to make the claim and put pressure on us that what we're doing is violating international law and we no longer have the right to do that in the face of the human rights movement. I hope, inshallah, every Muslim realizes what that means. Inshallah, no Muslim is going to give up any part of his deen, any part of the religion. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed something in the Qur'an or something in the sunnah, that is meant for all times until the day of judgment. If it were not meant for all times until the day of judgment, and especially those Muslim writers, like Abdullah Naim and this woman Ali, if they really believe that the Qur'an has been revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, don't they realize that if this law was not meant as Allah has stated in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have sent many other prophets and revealed many other books after the Qur'an to give us new laws for each time 
But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't do that. But instead gave us these laws clearly in the Quran and Sunnah. And these laws are meant for all of mankind until the day of judgment. And we as Muslims don't have the right to give up any of these. It is not our human right to give up anything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered us in the Quran or Sunnah. Because we cannot claim any right actually unless it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Anyone who comes to us and says we should change this, that Allah has said or given up this in the name of human rights, again as I said, on what basis do you claim that this is a human right? I'm telling you that our Creator, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, has sent this down in the revelation. What basis are you coming now and telling me, no, this is not part of human rights, this violates human rights? They can give you no basis. But this is what they want us, they want us to give up our religion. They want us to give up our acts to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the sake of what they're calling human rights. Which as I said, is baseless, has nothing behind it. And even those people themselves, as I said, if there's any, if there's any economic interest or any political interest that are more important, they're going to give up human rights even themselves. The real people who should stand up for human rights or where the real human rights are, are going to be among the Muslims. If someone is really interested in human rights as they should be, which will be best for them in this life and the year after, that person should become a Muslim and make jihad for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to establish the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then the real rights, the real way of life will be established for all human beings. And let me just mention... One last point, I think I've already gone on long enough, right? Brother Amjad is very quiet, mashallah. He's not, he's not like most of the people they get to sit next to me. <laughs> of course, that's probably because he wants me to go to Australia. And he probably knows that if he bothers me too much, I may say, well, I'm not going to Australia. <laughs> Let me talk about the greatest and the most important right. And this is the right that none of these other people can offer us or have anything to say about. And this is found in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. One time when the Prophet ﷺ was with Mu'adh ibn Jabal, he asked Mu'adh ibn Jabal, هَلْ تَدْرِ مَا حَقُّ اللَّهِ عَلَيْ بَادِي He asked Mu'adh ibn Jabal, Do you know what is the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon His servants? Oh, the right of Allah. This is something, uh, human rights. <laughs> now we're in completely foreign territory for those people of the human rights movement. What is the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon us? And Mu'al told him that Allah and His Messenger know best. He told him that the حَقَّ اللَّهِ عَلَيْبَادِهِ أَنْ يَعْبُدُهُ وَلَا يُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا The right of Allah upon His servants is that they worship Him and they do not ascribe any partners with him. Ascribing partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would include going to someone else for your sharia, for your rules and for your laws. So going to the human rights movement and getting our rights and laws from them, this is violating actually the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon us. But if we fulfill that right then we'll get something inshallah that as I said, none of these human rights people can help us in any way. 
And every Muslim must be aware of that fact. He should not be willing to sacrifice this right that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, going to, is giving him, that I'll mention, for any of these kind of human rights people or movements. Because then the Prophet asked Mu'ad, هَلْ تَدْرِ مَا حَقُّ الْإِبَادِ عَلَى اللَّهِ إِذَا فَعَلُوهُ Do you know what is the right of the servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Now this is the real right. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is declaring it. Do you know what is the right of the servants of Allah if they do that? If they worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and don't ascribe any partner to him? And Mu'adh ibn Jawl told him, Allah and his messenger know best. The Prophet said, the rights of the servant upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if they do that, if they worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not ascribe any partner with him, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not punish them. This is the real right. This is the right that we should be working for. This is the right that we should be yearning for. And this right we will get if we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not ascribe any partner to Him, we worship Him by accepting the Qur'an and the Sunnah and applying it in our lives with the proper beliefs to the best of our ability. And inshallah, we will have that right, which is the real right coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And on that point, I will end the lecture and open the floor for Brother Amjad.